this morning we are continuing our Family Portraits series, and Troy has been doing an incredible job of laying out what a biblical home should look like, and so I'm thankful that he's asked me to be a part of it this morning because I believe that there's really no more important topic for us to deal with today than God's design for the family, especially since our world is trying to legislate what constitutes as a marriage or redefine what a normal family should look like. But here's the thing with that. The world didn't invent marriage. The world didn't institute the family. God did. And since he's the creator and the designer of how our families should function, how our homes should operate, then he is the one that gets to define them regardless of how this world tries to twist it. So to that end, we've spent the last several weeks looking at God's design for marriage, for parenting, and last week we even got to look at dating. And today we're going to continue that trend and look at what I hope to be uh, what I hope will be some very practical parenting uh, uh, points when it comes to, to parenting and raising your kids. Uh, but you know, parenting advice—it uh, isn't hard to come by these days, is it? Both solicited and unsolicited, right? All you have to do to get parenting advice is like be pregnant or, or have a young kid and people will just tell you what you need to do. Like you don't even have to ask for it. They're just, they're happy to tell you the way that you should do things, right? If you do go looking for parenting advice, Amazon alone has over 50,000 parenting books, okay, that are available to you. And so many of them claim to have what you need when it comes to raising your kids, Right, Just follow these 12 steps for a new kid by Thursday afternoon, or implement this 29-point strategy to revolutionize your parenting philosophy, or feed your toddler these seven superfoods to change their behavior and teach them to read. Like, there's just, <laughs> and some of them are a little more sensational than others, but almost all of them claim to make parenting easier. But when you spend time looking at what the world has to say, and even if you spend your life studying what the world has to say about parenting, the volumes of information available to you don't hold a candle to the simplicity and the truth of God's word when it comes to raising your kids. So as I was preparing for this message, I came across this quote. It should be up on the screen. It's from Baxter's Explore the Book, referring to scripture. This library must not be measured merely by number of words, but by its depth of truth, by its breadth and fullness, by its superiority and finality. The Bible may seem very small against the imposing shelves of many a large library, yet with this one volume in our hand, we may stand within the largest library on earth and truthfully say that all the tens of thousands of books therein collected cannot teach us more about the fundamental realities of the universe and of human life than we learn in these scriptures." So while the world has all these steps and strategies to make parenting easier, today we're going to take a look at Scripture. And from there, I believe the Lord has given us some very clear advice of what will result in the picture-perfect family. We've got three points and really only two steps. And though it is incredibly simple, it is not easy. So I'm not claiming what all these other parenting books claim, to make parenting easier for you, okay? We're going to make it simple, but not easy. Parenting is hard. It takes work. It requires attention and energy and resources. And so, in the chaos of raising kids, God has given us a simple formula to make certain that our children end up going in the right direction. 
Now, when I say formula, some of you may be thinking, you know, it was my understanding that there would be no math this morning, and I'm with you. Math is not my strong suit. Just ask my wife. She'll tell you. However, out of all the people in my household, I'm probably like the second best at math in there. Okay? It's like Katie, and then me, and then Emma. But she's in the fourth grade, so she's really closing in on me there. <clears throat> but I am pretty good at my pluses and takeaways, or addition and subtraction, as we call it in the math biz. <laughs> All that to say, this formula is simple, and it comes from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs. Why don't you guys go ahead and turn there? If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Proverbs. We'll spend um, most of our time in there this morning. We'll be jumping around a little bit, um, but go ahead and turn to Proverbs chapter 1. In a proverb, you know, outside of Scripture, uh, and inside Scripture, I suppose, too, but a proverb is, is a concise yet potent statement full of wisdom and instruction for life, right? We're all familiar with a proverb. We hear them everywhere to the point where they become cliche. We find them in our fortune cookies at the Chinese buffet, and some of us grew up with them repeated to us over and over again. I know I did. My dad always seemed to have a one-liner ready for whatever situation we were in. So whether we were at home and he's you know, trying to teach us something handy around the house, he would say, you know, we're trying to put something back together. If it doesn't fit, don't force it, okay? Because so you'll end up breaking something and then you'll, you, know, you have to start all over. We've all been in that situation before. Or if he's given us a, he's tasked us with a job to complete, he would warn us, you know, if you do it right the first time, you won't have to do it again, right? Usually it was when it came to like picking up sticks in the yard because like immediately one of those sticks would turn into a sword and, and I, would, I, would, yeah, I would be distracted, I'd be gone, right, for, for a couple hours. But if you do it right the first time, you won't have to do it again. Or my personal favorite, when we were fussing about something, and I think I might have shared this one here before, be a warner, not a whiner, Okay? <laughs> We're all familiar with Proverbs. When it comes to Scripture, the majority of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, was written by Solomon to his son. All right? I grew up receiving Proverbs from my father, and Proverbs is a book written by Solomon to his son, full of advice for life. It, it'll become uh, evident quite quickly who it's written to. And, uh, and this is the family portrait that we're going to take a snapshot of today, where we'll see these flashes of instruction from a father to his son. And the Proverbs that we're looking at today were divinely inspired and preserved for us in God's Word. And actually, we can see all that they contain for us in the first seven verses of Proverbs. This isn't up on the screen, so hopefully you've turned there. We're going to start in Proverbs chapter 1 and just read the first seven verses. We'll, we, this is kind of the intro to the book, and these are all the things that we'll find in there that will help us with life. But today, what we're going to do is we're going to apply these things specifically to raising our kids. We're going to apply it to parenting. So, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, and judgment and equity, to give subtlety to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels. To understand a proverb and the interpretation, the words of the wise and their dark sayings. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So that's all that we have to hope for. So 
I pray that today we would find some instruction, some wisdom, some, uh, some guidance and understanding when it comes to raising our kids. And since we're looking at the book of Proverbs, for a formula that will lead to a picture-perfect family by God's design, our title for today is The Proverbial Picture-Perfect Family Formula. Okay, and I know it sounds like I ripped it straight from a Dr. Seuss book, but um, that's going to that's gonna set the framework for us this morning. We're going to look at the book of Proverbs to, to figure out what this picture-perfect family looks like. And God has given us some steps to follow, some advice, some instruction um, to, to make sure that that happens. So before we get into that, though, let's go to the, word, or let's go to the Lord in, uh, in a word of prayer. Lord, we do come to you this morning and uh, grateful for your word and the way that it instructs us and guides us. And so, Lord, I pray that today that's exactly what will happen, uh, that your word will do the work, that it will open our eyes and open our hearts uh, to the wisdom that it holds when it comes to raising our kids. Uh, Lord, and I just pray that there wouldn't be anything that gets in the way of that this morning, especially uh, me, Lord. And so I pray that uh, your strength would be made perfect in my weakness this morning as we open up your, your word and, and, and seek to, uh, to be guided by your Holy Spirit. So Lord, we pray these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. All right. So to get into our formula for today, the proverbial picture-perfect family formula, the first step in the formula as parents is we need to render instruction. Render instruction. Render just means to give, right? To produce, to proclaim instruction. And we're going to pick up where we left off there in Proverbs in the very next couple of verses. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, we see Solomon addressing his son, he says, My son, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother. For they shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head, and chains about thy neck. In other words, it, it'll, it'll be well for you, it'll be good for you. Okay, but he's calling his son to hear his instruction, and to hear the law of his, mo- the, the law of his mother. Or we might say, we need to disciple our children. Disciple your children. That's the way we, may, we might say it today. And we know from Matthew 28 that discipling is simply teaching. Right? We're all familiar with the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you all the way, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Listen, parents, we have to understand that the Great Commission begins in our homes. It begins in our homes. And as parents, we have the biblical responsibility to teach our children. As parents, we have the biblical responsibility to teach our children. We only have our children for a short time. And what we teach our kids in that short time, will literally set the direction for the rest of their lives, let alone their eternity. If we are faithful in this one area, we set our children up for an existence of purpose and unspeakable joy and peace that passes all understanding, which ends with the promise of everlasting life. Who wants that for their kids? Yeah, absolutely. But if we fail in this area... We risk leading our kids down a path that is filled with woe and heartache and that potentially ends with the eternal damnation of their souls. 
Now, parents, I'm not trying to be overly dramatic. In fact, if anything, I think I'm, I'm underselling it. But God Almighty has entrusted you to render instruction to your children. You have the unique responsibility and privilege to shape your child by what you teach them. So the question is, what do we teach them? Well, we saw in the Great Commission that it's what God has commanded us. Simply put, it's his word. And we see this over and over again in Scripture. We're just going to look at one, uh, we're going to look closely here at one book where it repeats it over and over, where God is giving instruction to Israel, and we can take that and, uh, and apply it to our life as an individual believer. Deuteronomy 4.10, especially the day that thou stoodest before the Lord thy God in Horeb, when the Lord said unto me, gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth, and that they may teach their children. We're responsible to teach our children God's word. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7. And these words, which I command thee this day, shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Shalt talk of them, God's words, when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Deuteronomy 11, 18 and 19. Therefore shall ye lay up these, my words, in your heart and in your soul, and bind them for a sign upon your hand, that they may be as frontlets between your eyes, and ye shall teach them your children. Speaking of them, when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Fast forward to the New Testament, 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 16. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. We see Paul writing to Timothy. He knew that he knew the scriptures. And we see elsewhere, it's because his mother and his grandmother taught him when? As a child. They taught, them, they taught him the Bible as a child. So our instruction must be based in the Bible. Our instruction must be based in the Bible. Go back to verse 16. We see this in the very next verse in that, uh, in that uh, passage. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for what? Instruction in righteousness. Our instruction must be based in the Bible. Now, let's go back to Proverbs and look at this father-son relationship. And see what we find there. Proverbs 6, 20-23. My son... Keep thy father's commandment and forsake not the law of thy mother. Bind them continually upon thine heart. Tie them about thy neck. When thou goest, it shall lead thee. When thou sleepest, it shall keep thee. And when thou awakest, it shall talk with thee. For the commandment is a lamp. Whose commandment? The father's commandment. And the law is light. Whose law? The mother's law. And the reproofs of what? Instruction are the way of life. Now, I want us to take note of that phrase there, the way. You see right there at the end of that, that verse, the way of life. We'll come back to that. But first, what does this verse 23 remind you of? For the commandment is a lamp and the law is light. Reminds us of Psalm 119, 105, doesn't it? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 
So when we compare these two verses from Proverbs and from Psalms, we see that a parent's instruction and the Word of God should have the same result. So that tells us that our instruction must be based in the Bible. Now, back to that phrase, the way. The way. This phrase kept coming up as I was preparing for this message, so I think we should take a minute uh, and take a look at it. Because there is clearly a direction that we want our children to go, isn't there? But more importantly, there is a direction that God wants our children to go. And so we need to know what that way is. Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Emphasis on the way. Too many times do I see people emphasize that he should go. As if, you know, there's a, there's a different way for everyone to go and you have to figure what, out what that is for your kid. But what they neglect is that there is the way. There is one way for all of us to go. And will it take different things for different kids to get them on that way? Yes. But that doesn't mean that they, you're setting them up to go on their own way. You're setting them up to go on the way. Psalms 32.8, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Notice over and over we see the way, not a way, because there is one way that God has laid out for all of us, and that way is Jesus Christ. John 14.6, Jesus saith unto him, I am what? The way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And and parents, if this is the way for everyone, then the way that we are going should lead our children in the way. Look again at this father's instruction to his son in Proverbs 23, 26. And this is so key. This is so important. My son, give me thine heart and let thine eyes observe what? My ways. My ways. Parents, if we want our kids to be led in the way, then we must internalize and exemplify God's instruction in our own lives. To where we can say, observe my ways. And we can go and we can say, my son, do you want to know what it is to to love your wife the way that Christ loved the church? Observe my ways. Or my daughter, do you want to know what it means to respect your husband, to reverence your husband? Then watch what I do. My children, do you want to know what it means to be a member of the church body? Then follow me. Can you say that? We have the biblical responsibility to teach our children. Our instruction must be based in God's word and we must internalize and exemplify what we want our kids to do in our own lives. Otherwise, this part of the, uh, this part of the formula is all thrown off. Right? This variable in the equation, it gets all messed up. It's crucial that we render biblical instruction to our children because the next step relies on us setting our kids up headed in the way that they should go. Because when, not if, when they stray 
from the way that they should go, then our instruction needs to be reinforced by correction. And that's the second part to the formula. You need to render instruction, and that instruction needs to be reinforced by correction. My son, Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. Neither be weary of his correction. Why? For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he delighteth. So we might say, discipline your children. Discipline your children. You can give clear and even biblical instruction to set your child on the way that they should go, but I guarantee at some point that child is going to stray off course, and if you don't reinforce your instruction with correction, the gap between where they are and where they should be will continue to grow. Right? And parents, this is so important. And listen, I know that there are all kinds of studies and philosophies when it comes to disciplining your child, but let's just take a look at what God has to say about it today, okay? Because I know this can be a sensitive subject, but I believe that the Lord has brought us here today, so let's not avoid it. I believe that the Bible teaches corporal discipline, or spanking. I believe it should be administered with some sort of rod, We'll see that repeated over and over today in our study. Not your bare hand. Most of us are familiar with the wooden spoon. My dad actually made a paddle out of some hardwood. And he even stamped a, a verse from Proverbs on there. Which verse from Proverbs? I'm not sure. It was moving too fast to read, but... Our rod of choice at home is a five-gallon paint stir stick. <clears throat> it should only be administered across the backside. Right? God has, has built in a cushion for our children <laughs> to be corrected. Take advantage of it. Now, don't misunderstand me. I believe that child abuse is an awful crime and a heinous sin. And unfortunately, some parents justify abuse in the name of discipline, and this is wrong. Abuse can and does cause lifelong trauma and has detrimental consequences for the victim. However, the converse is also true. Too many parents withhold discipline, specifically spanking, believing that it is abuse. This is a lie that the world has fed parents, and it is equally as wrong as abuse according to God's design for discipline. Understand, biblical discipline is only ever for the benefit of the child. If it is, if it is ever done in a way that truly abuses the child, physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually, it should be stopped, and the parent should repent and seek forgiveness from their child, and seek help from someone else. Now, I understand that for some of you in here, abuse may be a part of your childhood, and for that I am truly sorry. 
That was never a part of God's design for discipline, and I know that his heart is broken over it as well. If you'd like to talk about that, myself along with any of the other pastors, we'll be glad to talk to you and we would love to pray with you. But for now, let's just see what God says about discipline. And if we can, let's just take a moment to ask him to give us his perspective on this, okay? So will you, will you pray with me again just that God would open, us, open our eyes in this next section to, to help us see discipline the way that he sees it? We've heard so much about it. And there's so much that the world throws out about discipline and philosophies for raising your kids. But I don't know if you guys have ever heard this before, but the world hates you. <laughs> have you guys, have you, anyone heard that recently? Troy's been pointing it out over and over again. When it comes to the family, the world hates what a biblical family looks like. And they're trying to stop you from setting your child up on the way. And God has given us a formula to make sure our kids end up on the right path. And so let's just take a second and pray and ask him to show us his perspective on this. Lord, we come to you again, and I, I just want to ask, Lord, that uh, in this next section that our eyes and our hearts would be open to what your word has to say when it comes to correcting our children. Lord, that we would set aside everything that we've heard that's come from the world and trust that your word knows what's best and then leave here and apply it in our lives and in our families so that ultimately, so that ultimately you can be glorified, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so in your notes there, I have a brief biblical guide to discipline because there's a lot that we could say about it. I tried to break it down into, into uh, to four points. A brief biblical guide to discipline. Number one, discipline out of love, not anger. Discipline out of love and not anger. In this first verse we're going to take a look at, maybe a hard one to hear, but it's important for us to set the context when it comes to disciplining our kids. Proverbs 13, 24. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. So according to this, if you withhold discipline from your kids, you hate your kids. Parents will say that they can never discipline their kids because they love them too much, Right? That's why they only use techniques like positive reinforcement or redirection, and those things have their place for certain times. But if you truly love your child, you will do the hard thing and you will spank them. We see that if you spare the rod, if you spare discipline, specifically spanking, that you hate your child. And hate here is not like to de detest or disdain your kid, right? It means that you are against your kid. You are not helping them. You are not setting them up on the way that they should go. You're against your kid. Chasten means to discipline or correct, and be times means early and diligently, or as often as necessary. But early and diligently, I think, are the, are the best way to describe that and to take that to heart. I don't understand how parents can say that they love their kids too much to discipline them. According to this, it makes no biblical sense. Look at it from the perspective of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Right? We just saw in the verse uh, that introduced this point, Proverbs 3.12. For whom the Lord, what? Loveth, he correcteth. We see this concept reiterated in the New Testament. Hebrews 12.5-8. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son... 
Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, or corrects, disciplines, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Right? If he's disciplined you, it's saying that it's because you're his son. He doesn't discipline people that aren't his kids. But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. It means that God is not a legitimate father to you if he doesn't love you enough to discipline you. So many times people go through hard things in life and their perspective is skewed on who God is and how he loves them. Life gets hard and they feel like, why is God doing this to me? God doesn't love me. No, he does it because he loves you. You need to see the discipline in your life is proof for God's love for you. The same is true when it comes to our kids. But if you need correction in your life because the Lord loves you, he will discipline you and he does it out of love. If he didn't, then you wouldn't be his son. Growing up, my parents never disciplined the neighbor's boy. They may have wanted to, but they disciplined me and my brothers, some more than others, because we were their sons. Understand, when it comes to our relationship with our Heavenly Father, and when it comes to our relationship with our earthly children, discipline is proof of love. And that's why it's so critical to to discipline out of love and not anger. Because the way we discipline our kids could have the opposite effect of correcting them or bringing them back into a right relationship with the family. Colossians 3.21, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. When you discipline in anger, it provokes your children to anger and ends up having the opposite effect of reconciliation. It results in discouragement and pushes you further apart. If you can't control your own emotions during a moment that requires discipline, then you need to stop, make sure that you get God's perspective on what you're about to do before you continue. Discipline out of love, not anger. Number two, discipline while they're young. Discipline while they're young. Let me just say this. Most of the specifics in this section are geared toward correcting younger kids. Okay? I'm not saying that you should be bending your 16-year-old son over your knee who's now taller than you, can drive, and has a job. Discipline should look different for older kids and be age-appropriate, but the principles still apply. If you're past the point of having young children, disciplining becomes increasingly difficult if you didn't start when they were little. The same is true when it comes to discipling your kids, by the way. Start when they're little. Proverbs 19.18 says this, Chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy soul spare for his crying. Again, chasten means to discipline. So discipline your kid while there is hope. In other words, while they're still young, because the older they get, the more difficult it is to effectively discipline them. This just makes sense, doesn't it? If you don't require obedience from your kids when they're young and the little things, what makes you think they'll obey you when they're older and it's something of 
bigger consequence. Remember when we started this section, I, I said, I guarantee that your child will stray from the instruction that you give them someday, right? And the longer you put off correction, the wider that gap grows. Is there more hope of correcting the path that they're on while they're just off a few steps? Or if they've been off since adolescence? It's just like a road trip. It's easier to correct your course when you missed a turn than when you have been headed in the wrong direction for three hours. Not that I know this from experience or anything. (laughs) It's obviously easier to adjust your direction when you're off by a little bit. Anyone who has children can attest that they seemingly defy your instruction almost immediately, right? The cliche illustration is, don't touch that. (laughs) They will touch it immediately, okay? Then what happens is because they are young, we fail to discipline them, but that is precisely the time to discipline them, is when they are young. When our kids were young at home, we child-proofed our home all over. We had baby bumpers everywhere. When we told them to not touch something and they touched it, boom, a baby bump on the backside. If I said don't climb on that and they climbed on that, boom, a bump on the backside. We child-proofed our home by giving our children instruction and correcting them when they disobeyed. We child-proofed our house without one cabinet lock or one corner guard. There is more hope of getting your child to obey you when it comes to cleaning up their rooms and respecting you as parents when they're young, dumb, and still dependent on you for everything. (laughs) It's way harder to get them to heed your warning of the influence of bad friends and the dangers of premarital sex if you don't start correcting them until they're full of hormones, covered in body hair, and think they already know more than you. You have to start when they're young. Now, is there still hope for your teenager to end up going in the way he or she should go? Of course. But it won't be easy if you didn't start correcting them when they were young. So, you have to get to work and you have to pray like crazy. Number three, discipline to correct, not punish. Discipline to correct, not punish. Proverbs 22.15 Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. Do you know what is in every kid's heart? It's foolishness, right? That's why we have age requirements for things like driving and voting, etc. in our society. Because kids are foolish. There needs to be a process of maturity before they can be trusted with greater responsibility. But do you know what will drive that foolishness out of your child faster than anything? Discipline. It's called the rod of correction for a reason. Because that's the goal of discipline. To correct their foolishness. That's why instruction and correction must go hand in hand. Because a fool will despise instruction. We saw this in Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 15.5, a fool despiseth his father's, what? Instruction. 
And so the rod of correction, as we saw in Proverbs twenty-two fifteen, will drive that foolishness out of your child so that he or she will be ready to receive the instruction that you give them. There is foolishness in the hearts of children, so much that they despise our instruction. When we discipline our children, it drives that foolishness out of their hearts. Our correction makes room for instruction. Proverbs 29.15, the rod and reproof give wisdom. That's the opposite of foolishness, right? The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. We could say that foolishness is knowing what is wrong, but choosing to do it anyway. Wisdom, on the other hand, is knowing what is right and choosing to do it. Isn't that what we want for our kids? Well, the rod gives wisdom. A child left to himself brings his mother to shame. We have a world of children that have been left to themselves. All too often, parents wait to discipline, not to correct their child, but to punish their child. It's usually because they've reached this point of shame. They're embarrassed. That's that's the wrong motive for disciplining your kids. The motive for discipline should always be to correct, to make things right. Not to punish because the kid had it coming, or because they offended you, or because they embarrassed you, but you correct their foolishness so that they can be in a right relationship with you as their parent, but more importantly, so that they can be in a right relationship with their Heavenly Father. If we don't correct our children's disobedience as parents, then we are training them to disobey God himself. Let that sink in. The next time you want to slip on discipline and let them go, you're training them to disobey God. In the book of Ephesians, God gives a member of the, every member of the family a job. Right? Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. And out of all the instruction, God gives husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, kids have one thing. They have one job. Ephesians 6, 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Parents, discipline your children to correct their foolishness and help them fulfill their role in the family. By allowing their foolishness to slip, by allowing them to disobey you without correcting them, you are setting them up to disobey their Heavenly Father. Number four, discipline with consistency. Discipline with consistency. And this may be one of the hardest things for parents, right? Why? Because parents are always tired. Always tired. And that leads to inconsistency. We're inconsistent in, in what, when, and why we discipline. We discipline one day, but not the next. We discipline for one offense, but not the next time they commit the same offense. The kid doesn't know if they're going to get in trouble the first time or the fifth time. We saw this uh, verse earlier, but let's go back to look at the second half, Proverbs 19, 18. Chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy soul spare for his crying. When they know that they're in trouble, what do they do? 
They turn on the waterworks, right? Listen, I did it when I was a kid. I can remember. Okay? I can specifically remember. Like, oh, no, please don't, you know? And then we tend to think, oh, you know, poor baby. They've learned their lesson. When in reality, they've just learned how to manipulate, manipulate you into getting out of a spanking. Sometimes we think it's not worth the fight. But let me tell you, it is worth it to discipline your children with consistency. Because let's look at the results. Proverbs 23, 13 through 14. Withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. This, by the way, also goes to show that biblical discipline is not abuse. God promises if you do it the way he does it, they won't die. True child abuse can lead to death. So, anyways, withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. Does anybody want their kid to be delivered from hell? Anybody in here? Just a couple, just a couple of you? Oh, gosh. <clears throat> Listen, that's a strong verse. And it may make some of you feel uncomfortable. Good. Because if you're not spanking your young kids, you should be. I am pro-spanking. And the reason that I am for spanking is because I am against sending my kids to hell. Parents, love your kids enough to discipline them. Let's pick up in Hebrews where we left off earlier. Hebrews chapter 12, 9 through 11. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? Right? For those of us that grew up with parents that loved us enough to spank us, we respect them for it now, don't we? I do. Verse 10. For they, our earthly parents, verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Our heavenly Father chastens us for our profit, to make us holy. It is always for our good when it comes from our heavenly Father, and it should always be for the good of our children when it comes for us. Verse 11, Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. When discipline is taking place, truly neither the parent nor the child enjoy it. My mom used to say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And I believe it, it was true. She didn't spank that hard. <laughs> now, <clears throat> on the other hand, my dad on the other hand, let's just say we prefer to be disciplined by mom. <laughs> but the goal of discipline is not the act itself. The goal is the result of the discipline, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And that brings us to the final part of our proverbial picture-perfect family formula, which is it results in adoration. It results in adoration. The result of instructing and correcting our children is a home where the parents love and adore their children and where the children love and admire their parents. Proverbs 29, 17. 
Correct thy son, and he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. As, as we saw that you are, number one, to disciple your children, and number two, discipline your children, then God promises if you do these two things, you will delight in your children. Delight in your children. Isn't that what we want our homes to look like? To be full of love and adoration? Parents who delight in their children instead of resenting them? I know that most parents love their children. But our world is full of parents who don't like their children. Because they have failed to instruct and correct their kids. They don't delight in them. There is no rest in their homes. So to catch a break, parents put a screen in front of their kids or spoil them with stuff as a reward. Or excuse me, uh, not, as, not as a reward, but as a way to pacify them. And instead of correcting their behavior, they're encouraging it. And what gets rewarded gets repeated. And so this spirals into an unruly child and unrested and resentful parents. That's not what God intended for the biblical home. You see, God has given us a formula for the picture-perfect family. And it's, it's not picture-perfect by the world's standards. But it's the perfect picture of the family that God has designed. One that results in love and delight and rest. So if your home is not characterized by those things, I would encourage you to take a look at the instruction that you're giving your kids. And then, how are you correcting that? So if today our snapshot was, the, was of the proverbial family, to wrap things up, I want us to take a look at uh, a thumbnail of a family. A thumbnail is like a smaller picture for those of you that are not as tech savvy. It's like a little picture of something. So we're going to take a look at a thumbnail of a family that messed up this formula and let it serve as a warning for us. Okay? So in conclusion, the thumbnail of Eli and his sons. And I'm going to summarize a lot of this. You can go and you can read them in 1 Samuel. As you see, you can see, see the full story there. This is where uh, Hannah has been praying for a son. God answers her prayer, and uh, she, she gives her son over to uh, the priest Eli in the temple uh, so that her son Samuel can serve there. Okay, But we find the story of Eli and his sons. Their names are Hophni and Phinehas. They just sound like troublemakers. In 1 Samuel... Eli and his sons were priests of the temple in Shiloh, and they were not good ones at that. What we'll see is that Eli only got part of the formula. He missed a very important variable, and then we'll see the results. As I was, uh, again, as I was preparing the study program that I use um, to look up some stuff, the, the, the header for this section was Eli's worthless sons. And so if that gives you any kind of indication of how things went, um, Here's the story of Eli's worthless sons, okay? Um, we're going to jump around quite a bit. 1 Samuel 2.12. Now the sons of Eli were the sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. These two guys were priests at the temple, okay? Someone is lying on their resume, okay? They knew not the Lord. 1 Samuel 2.17. Wherefore the sin of the, young man, of the young men, referring to Eli's sons, was very great before the Lord, 
for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Eli's sons took advantage of the offering of the Lord, and it, it led men to abhor it, to hate going there, to go and have to, to try to obey the Lord by making their sacrifices at the temple. They hated it because of these two guys. That's a dangerous place uh, to be in. All right, but Eli heard about this, and look what he did when he heard about it. 1 Samuel 2, 22 through 25. Now Eli was very old, right? He was probably tired. We saw that. He's just so tired, okay? And heard all that his sons did unto all Israel, and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he said unto them, Why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. Now, you can see that Eli kind of gets one portion of this formula right. Once he hears what his sons are doing, he cautions them. He gives them some instruction to knock it off. But let's look at the next chapter. And so, we're skipping a lot of the story, but Samuel was a young man, and uh, he was serving with Eli, and God gave Samuel a message for Eli. God spoke to Samuel with a message concerning Eli and his family, and look at it for Samuel chapter 3, 11 through 14. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house, when I begin, I will also make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. And therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli, that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. Eli knew what his sons were doing. He even instructed them to do otherwise. But where Eli failed his family is that he never corrected their sin. Look at verse 13 again. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth. Eli was aware. He even confronted his sons about it. But it goes on to say, because his sons made themselves vile and he restrained them not. The judgment is not necessarily because the sons made themselves vile. The judgment coming on Eli's family is because he never corrected their sin. He restrained them not. Eli knew what his sons were doing, but he restrained them not. And the result was not delight in his children, but instead destruction for his family. So let's let Eli's example serve as a warning for all of us parents. We have two destinations for our family depending on how faithful we are to follow God's formula for leading our family. It will result in delight or destruction. How faithful you are to instruct your children and to correct them when they get off that path will result in either delight or destruction. We see this principle in Matthew, and let's apply it to leading our families today. And this is where we'll wrap up, Matthew 7, 13 through 14. 
Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the what? The way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. We have a world full of broken families. And if you want to take that path, you won't be lonely. But if you do what the world does, you get what the world gets. And that is destruction for your family. Verse 14. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is what? The way which leadeth unto life. And few there be that find it. There is a way that leads to life, but that way is rigorous. That way is narrow. There's not a lot of company on that path, but it leads to life. That's the way that we want to go. That's the way that we want to set our kids up on. And God has laid out the steps for us to get there with our families intact. Render biblical instruction. Reinforce with loving correction. And the result is a picture-perfect biblical home. Will you bow your heads with me? Maybe today you're here and you might say, that's something that I want for my family. But I don't even know where to start. Let me tell you that it begins with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you've never made that decision, there is a room full of people here today that would love nothing more than to share how you can be saved. Talk to one of them. Come talk to me. Talk to one of the other pastors on staff. There's nothing more important today than to make sure that you are in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the first step to getting your family on the path that they should go. Or maybe you're here and you have that relationship with the Lord, but you don't know what your next step is to get on the path that will lead your family in the way that God has designed. Maybe you feel alone in this world, trying your best. Let me encourage you to get plugged in into a life group. Life groups are full of people that are in the same stage of life as you, trying to head in the right direction. You can find out more in the bulletin, on our website, at the welcome desk. Let me encourage you to join us tonight for our prayer time. We have specific things that we're praying for, but but we also take time to, to pray for what's going on in our own lives. And tonight we'll be laying out the new direction for, for, uh, for prayer first as we head into the new year. Let me encourage you to be here tonight. Make that a priority. All right? Father, we come to you this morning and as always, grateful for your word. Thankful that it gives us the instruction that we need. And Lord, we're thankful that you're a loving father that doesn't leave us on the wrong path when we stray, but you love us enough to correct us. Lord, may, may our homes... And our relationships with our kids just be a picture of your relationship with us. Lord, you've given us a word. You've you've given us a commandment. You've given us instruction to live by. Help us to teach our kids that instruction. Lord, you love us enough to correct us. Help us to love our kids enough to correct them when they stray from the instruction of your word so that our homes can be the way that you designed them full of love and adoration and admiration. God, I believe that you would get the glory from that. Most of the world is headed on a path in their family that leads to destruction, and we see it every day in every area of life. It all stems back to what happened in the home. Lord, may our homes enter in at the straight gate, 
May our homes be on the way that leads to life for our family's sake, for our children's sake, and God, for your sake, that you would receive the glory from it all. Pray these things in your name. Amen.